The wind is blowing my notes everywhere, and it is wonderful. Because we are thankful to have that breeze this morning, and we will not complain about it, even if it blows these stands over in a few minutes. But we're continuing a series as we're outdoors, looking at the hymns of the church, looking at the truth in the hymns that we sing, and letting those encourage us and remind us of who we are and of whose we are and how we're to live in this life. And this morning, there's a beautiful truth in our hymn by Thomas Pollock that we'll close the service with. The hymn is, Jesus with thy church abide. And I'll comment on that hymn at the close of the sermon. But in preparation for that hymn, our passage of scripture is John chapter 17. And it is, I'm going to admit to you, it is the longest passage of scripture I will have ever read and preached from. I waited for the hottest day and the brightest sun to do this. Um, the reason that I'm doing this is because this is the passage that much of the hymn is based upon. It is the high priestly prayer of Jesus, his prayer for the church, universal, his prayer for his disciples. And I didn't feel right just taking an excerpt from that prayer. And so though I won't comment on the whole prayer, we're going to hear, and I want you to hear, the entire prayer of Jesus. But before I read it, know this. It is a beseeching prayer. And that language of beseeching means it is a passionate plea, an impassioned plea, a fervent prayer, part of his passion week and his preparation for his own death. Jesus knows that his crucifixion is about 24 hours away. And so as I read this, have that in mind. When you know that you're about to die and you have final comments that will be heard by your disciples, I suppose you're going to say the things that matter most, the things you want to be remembered and recorded. And in God's good providence, we have that in this passage. We have some of, some of those last words, the last teachings through a prayer that Jesus wants his church to know. Not just his disciples then, but those who would come later, ourselves included. So with that context, here at John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, all 26 verses. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth, by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. 
They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray that God would bless our understanding of his word. Father, that is our prayer. You would open our eyes to see who Jesus is, what he has done, that he loves his church and that we are to be one, and that he prays even now with abiding love for us. Lord, would you lift our hearts with such a confidence, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Have you ever overheard someone's private conversation? Maybe a personal conversation between two people and you weren't supposed to hear it? I thought about this week as I read this prayer and thought about this prayer because a lot of it does seem like private and personal conversation between Jesus and God because it is a prayer. But it's not like our overhearing a conversation nearby by mistake, something that we should apologize for hearing. Jesus intended to be overheard. Jesus intended for his disciples to hear from him. This is part of the upper room discourse where in John chapter 13 through 17, Jesus has his last moments with his disciples. And if you go back and read John 13 through 17, you see intentional and pastoral teaching, love and care intentionally offered to his disciples because Jesus knows these are his last days with them. The disciples have been selfish. They've really been like little children, arguing, quibbling. Jesus washes their feet. They didn't think to wash one another's feet. Jesus is using every opportunity to teach. And really this prayer summarizes well the whole content of the Gospel of John and his appeal to remain in him, to abide in him, to love one another, to be unified as a church. That's what Jesus wanted for his disciples. That's what he wants for us. And so really there are three sections to this prayer. I'm going to work through the first two very quickly, hopefully. And then the third section where he prays for the church universal. He prays for all those who would one day believe. The real meat of our sermon, I think, will be there. But first, Jesus prays for himself. He prays, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. And so the Father loves the Son and glorifies the Son. And the Son loves the Father and glorifies the Father. And there is this perfect unity that we don't understand in this life. We don't know this kind of unity, but the Father and the Son have this unity. Now, you can't talk about fathers and sons and human relationships in this world without knowing there tends to be tension, conflict, harsh words, disappointment. But that is not the nature of this ultimate father and ultimate son. They are in complete unity a submission in the Godhead that we can't understand, but it's what he's modeled for us. And Jesus prays for himself because of what he is about to do. He knows that he is about to deal with the people's sin, all of the people's sin, once and for all, all time. There is a need for blood atonement. We know from the Old Testament the author to Hebrews reminds us that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus here prays for himself because he will become that sacrifice for sin. And just as the Old Testament priest would pray and consecrate the sacrifice before it is offered, so Jesus here prays for himself that he would be the sanctifying sacrifice for his people because Jesus is the ultimate high priest. 
Rob Rayburn says of this passage, John 17 has been referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer because in the prayer he both consecrates himself as the sacrifice that he will soon make for the salvation of his people and because of his intercessory prayer for his people. The offering of sacrifice and prayer for the people, those are the work of a priest. And Jesus was the great high priest. So Jesus prays for himself, not in an act of selfishness, but in the ultimate act of selflessness as he prepares for what is to come some 24 hours from this moment. Secondly, Jesus prays for his disciples. That would be his 12 minus 1, Judas. He prays in verse 11 that they would be protected by the name. He says, the same name that you have given me. He prays that they would be protected from the evil one and from the world's hostility as they are in the world but not of the world. Now maybe we connect with that in our current culture. Maybe you know what it is to need protection from the evil one and from the hostilities of this world towards God's people, towards the church. It seems that hostility becomes more and more overt in our own land and in the culture in which we leave, we live. But we should find hope here that Jesus prays for his disciples. You might remember in Luke's gospel, Jesus says to Simon Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, to shake you vigorously. But, Jesus says, I have prayed for you. And sure enough, we would see that Peter would be sifted like wheat. He would be shaken vigorously. But in the end, his faith would stand strong, ultimately. Because Jesus had prayed for him. And the same Jesus who prayed for Peter when he would be sifted by wheat, this passage tells us that Jesus, that same Jesus, is praying for us, for his disciples, for his church. And we, too, are being sifted like wheat. And our great hope is not that we'll roll up our sleeves and have enough strength to, to stand the test. Our great hope is that Jesus is praying for us, that he loves us. Our great hope for unity is that Jesus is praying for us, that the true church would remain true until the very end. And he prays thirdly in there, in section 2, that they would be sanctified that they would be made holy. That is to say that they would actually withstand the world and not become like the world. And it's a great application for us. If we name ourselves as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, are we sanctified? Or are we a lot like the world? Do we think like the world? Do we value the things of the world? Are we enjoying the world with the church a la carte on the side. Jesus said, sanctify my church, make them holy. Through my sacrifice and through the Holy Spirit, change my people. And Jesus is praying that even now 
for us. And then thirdly, and where the real meat of the sermon for us this morning is, Jesus prays for the future believers. He prays for those yet to come who would believe the word, who would believe the message, that is to say the church. And here we are gathered 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning in Greenwood, South Carolina, these many years later. And this passage tells us he was praying for us and he continues to pray for us. Jesus prays for his church because Jesus loves his church. And he's loved his church from all eternity. By number and name, he has loved his church. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Jesus loves us and prays for us as an older brother. As an older brother to us. The scriptures say this in many places. Hebrews chapter 2, Romans chapter 8, Mark chapter 3. Different references where Jesus identifies as a brother to us. And as I thought through that, is it good news to you that God is your heavenly father and Jesus is your older brother? Well, maybe for you it really depends on your immediate thoughts of a father and a brother. And maybe you've had a bad experience with an earthly father. Maybe you've had a bad experience with an earthly brother. But Jesus is the ultimate big brother. And God is the ultimate heavenly father. Not to be defined by your experience with those things in this life, but to be experienced as he reveals himself to be a faithful, loving, tender, and true big brother. Listen to what John Calvin said about Jesus as our older brother. He says, There is a second Adam who has come to remedy all, our Lord Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are bone of the bones of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are in him a new and second creation. And there is no doubt at all that we are joined to God by means of him, seeing he is our true brother, because we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. For just as he is very God, so on the other hand, he is akin to us. And because he came down in order that we might be glorified by means of him. And for that reason, says Calvin, he is also called our brother. Jesus is our big brother, but maybe in a way that we've never experienced a human brother or a human friendship in any human way. Jesus comes and he prays and he prays for the church, but what does he pray for? This is where we get a look into the heart of Jesus and what matters most as he knows he's in his final hours. What are the words that come to his mind? What are the words that come from his tongue? Well, they are quite specifically that we would be one. That we would have what he says in verse 23 is complete unity. Well, now let's think about that in ourselves for a minute. How unified is the church that you know? Universal or local? 
one just has to visit social media and see how we're doing. Individually, person by person. Sniping people. Tearing people down. Tearing churches down. Tearing people groups down. It's not a lot of unity. How are we doing if this is the ultimate desire of Jesus for his church? How's that working for us? How are we doing? There's a lot of different concepts about being one, having one love, having one heart, having one heartbeat. As I thought about this this week, you know, everybody plays off of the image of unity and of coming together and being one. If you're Bob Marley, you write a song about it, about one love, one heart. Let's just get together and feel all right, he says. If you're a college football coach, it's amazing how many speeches you can find on YouTube of college football coaches talking about having one heart, one heartbeat. That was so present in my mind this week. I was like, I know that I've heard a coach talking about this, and I don't think it's Dabo Sweeney. And so I did a little searching, and sure enough, it was my, it was my bad memory that forgot that it was LSU's head football coach who had said to his team when he was named head coach just over two years ago, he says, we're going to be one team, one heartbeat, on one page. And then he said, go do your job and fight for your brother. Almost sounds like the words of Jesus, right? Go do your job, one team, one heartbeat, be on the same page, go fight for each other, go be the church, right? It's one thing when a football coach says it. It's another thing when our Lord says, I want you to have unity, and I want the world to marvel over your unity and your love. I want them to know that I am true and I am real because you demonstrate it. You show it in the earth by how much you love each other, how much you love and serve the people around you. You become the ones who authenticate the message, Jesus says. And so again, how are we doing? We can't even handle social media, some of us. We can't hold back the comments that we want to use to crush somebody. And Jesus says, my people are to be characterized by love and unity. And in our culture, that sounds cliche. But Jesus said it first, and he said it right. We just play off of it because we know there's something to it. Jesus said, my church will be known by love and by unity. What would a church that took that seriously look like? What would Christians look like that lived in the world that really tried to model love and model community? Someone sent me this story this week. I call it repentance over donuts. I think this is what the church looks like in the world. The author says, I was rude to someone today. We're on vacation out of state this week in North Carolina. I walked to our usual donut joint with my mask on. The owner walked up to me and started to take my donut order. In retrospect, I should have given more attention to her weary countenance. I took one side of my mask off so I could continue my order without being muffled. 
And without hesitation, the manager said, Sir, please put your mask on. My worldly flesh convinced me that this was the time for me to be a patriot. I put the mask loop over my ear, and I told her that we wouldn't be needing any donuts after all. She seemed to shrug my response off, and so I continued. I didn't yell. I didn't make a scene. But I looked at her straight in the face and told her she was rude. We then exchanged pleasantries, and I left. But, this is what repentance looks like. But, two miles down the road, the Holy Spirit smote my heart. I realized I had stood for my personal belief while ignoring humility and grace. I turned the van around. I drove back to the donut shop. I entered the shop, and the same woman was standing there. I walked right up to her with my mask on, looked her in the eye, and said, I'm sorry. With workers and other customers looking on, I asked for her forgiveness and I told her I should have been more gracious and humble. She opened up to me for a few minutes about how tough the current situation was on her as a former nurse and a current small business owner. She was tired. She was weary. She was worried. She didn't need a seasonal patriot. She needed a gracious Christian. I purchased my donuts. We laughed and I left. And when I got back to the van, I explained to my children that it was important that we set ourselves aside for the well-being of others. I made sure my kids knew that I was willing to eat crow so a tired stranger could have an emotionally healthy day. I explained to my children that what I had done and how I needed to make it better. I explained to my children that God allows us to make mistakes so his grace can make a greater display to the watching world. How many of us could fill in the blank with our own name, our own story from Walmart or CVS or in traffic at a light or wherever? But when the church takes seriously that, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I'm to be salt and light, I'm to bring love and unity, I'm to be the church. That's when we know that the prayers of Jesus for his church are having effect in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own families, and in our own church family. What if each of us was to live that way this week? Think of all the different scenarios and stories that each of us is inserted into what if each of us walked with that kind of mentality to go and to be the church, to love people well for the sake of the gospel, and to seek to model unity in a world that does not have it and does not understand it? That is what it surely means to be the church in the way that God has called us to be. Jesus is our older brother. He loves his church. He loves his church. He laid down his life for his church. And he prays for his church. I saw another story this week that surely you have seen as well. But it's a story of a young boy named Bridger Walker. 
a six-year-old boy. And his aunt posted this story on social media, which is how I saw it. And it says this about little six-year-old Bridger Walker. She says, on July 9th, my six-year-old nephew Bridger saved his little sister's life by standing between her and a charging dog. After getting bitten several times on the face and on the head, he grabbed his sister's hand and he ran with her to keep her safe. And when asked, the little six-year-old boy said this, If someone had to die, I thought it should be me. Now he's six years old and his sister is between three and four years old. There's a picture I can't share with you, but those who are watching online, we're showing it online. But it's a handsome little six-year-old boy with stitches across a ripped face, across an eye, and a beautiful little sister. She's three or four years old. And the older brother, the older brother concludes, if someone had to die, I figured it should be me. Finally, an older brother in this life who demonstrates what it is to lay down their life for the younger brother. Now, Jesus is our older brother, and he laid down his life for us. He was torn to pieces for us. But I think you and I are too quick to identify ourselves as the cute, pretty little, blonde, three- or four-year-old. I was talking through this story with a friend, and he said, you know, what if we have more in common with the pit bull? What if that's who we really have been? And for some of us, maybe that's more apt. Jesus has laid down his life as our older brother. He has prayed for us. He has saved us, and there's not a one of us that deserves it. But he's loved us, and he's loved us well. Let's pray that we might be characterized this week and for the rest of our lives by the love and the unity that Christ has prayed for us. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask that you would work in our hearts even a spirit of repentance, the same repentance that you've worked in us before and that you've worked in men and women throughout history. Lord, would you give us a heart for the church, a heart for Jesus, a heart for the kingdom, that we might be willing to put to death our personal preferences, our self-righteousness for the good of the church. We ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.